This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R One O Two Point Seven FM. Yes, welcome, 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 one and all to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Street Triple R's weekly discussion point on the big picture issues and the local ground-up solutions to them all, or at least some. Bushy speaking here, I've just started to get the feeling back in my thumbs after a frosty, uh, horizontal, rainy, snow kind of day. As always, joining me in the studio is the co-conspirator, the gentlemanly gumboot boogie master, Adam Grubb. Hey, Copper, what were you doing with your thumbs? You weren't twiddling them enough. No, well, you couldn't. They'd crack. Yeah. You got yeah. some snow up on the mount today. We got some snow, mostly slush in, the, in that kind of thing. Got some uh, horizontal um, ice from the sky. It, oh, like, I, yeah, weather's weather, isn't it? Yeah, you judge it, you sound like a fool, but, man, it was harsh mm-hmm. today. It was harsh. Isn't it like the coldest winter in 10 years or something? Something like that, yeah, yeah. I'm at a real risk of being attacked by penguins. It's cold. And that voice you just heard, that lovely voice, joining us on rotation. It's been a while since we've had her in. She is an all-round wonderful person, and she is the Food Systems Team Leader at Cultivating Communities. Peter Christensen, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. How you be? Yeah, I'm good. Indeed. It's been cold today too, but yeah. it's toasty in here. Snowing in the inner city? Not yet. Nah. Possibly tomorrow. Everyone dressed up as Paddington Bear. It's a nice look, isn't it? Yeah. And the bicycle master whisperer and all-round fabulous person and the smooth operator of the panel is Jed McCartney. How are you going, Jed? Um, well, thanks. Evening all. Indeed. Keep the thermals on today. I have. Indeed. Very cool out there. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, this evening we are getting on the phone to chat with Rafta Sass Ferguson on the topic of agroecology, which we've, uh, we've not yet spoken about on the show. Uh, we are going to be discussing the science, or lack of it, in uh, regenerative farming and asking him how hopefully is that organic can feed the world. Uh, Greening the Apocalypse is the show you're listening to. We usually kick off with a little chat about things that have caught our eye during the week. And, Peter, you want to kick off first? Sure. Um, so given the task of what caught my eye this week, there were heaps of things, but I really liked this SBS article called A Need, A Fuel, A Joy, What Food Means to Me. Uh, basically, it's an article uh, that looked at uh, about eight different people's perspective on food mm. and really that sort of thing of food's not just food. Um, so there's a dumpster diver, there's an Iraqi asylum seeker who went on a hunger strike on Christmas Island in 2011, uh, a doco maker who was living on a dollar a day uh, in mm. Guatemala for three months, the athlete, a vlogger who has uh, who does you know recipes and uh, cooking show, um, a goat dairy, a restaurateur, and an eating disorder survivor. Yeah, yeah. That so, last one's a really interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, because she sort of talks about. I was re- reading through this article after you um, put it through to us. I think she she reckons she can locate the time in her life. She was about ten, and she started to become uh, dissatisfied with how her thighs looked. Yeah. 
And um, so her relationship to food, because everyone else in this has got a, a very positive relationship to yes, food. Yes, yes. You know, the athlete, the, all these different people. Um, and hers has been a battle. Yeah, she just lost all joy to do with food at all because it was all about counting the calories and purging and, you know, worrying about what she'd been putting into her body. So she had to really reconstruct her whole relationship with food. Mm. And now she's become a nutritionist or something like that. So, you know, she's um, really kind of promoting those positive relationships to food to other people. So, mm. yeah, you know, that's often, you know, food's so important to all of us every single day and in lots of different ways. And I loved this article because I think some Sometimes we see this kind of thing, what food means to me, mm. with restaurateurs and mm. gardeners and, you know, kind of foodie types, whereas yeah. this really kind of went outside that box and looked at, you know, um, really interesting take on those relationships. Mm. I have to confess that in my house, um, the members of my household who aren't me are currently hooked on MasterChef again. And uh, every time I turn around, someone seems to be weeping into their food because it reminds them of a departed grandmother or like a... It's uh, true. Or their favourite dog or something like that. And, yeah, and... (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, I don't know, it's good. It's, there's, there's a joy in it, albeit you can't fairly salty. You the recipe unless you remember the grandmother and... Yeah, unless you yeah, saw yeah. salty tears. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The special ingredient. That saline tang. Yeah. Indeedy. Well, uh, Adam, you and I kind of ended up um, with a couple of articles that had captured our eyes and imagination that went side by side. Um, I think I, there's a tenuous link at least. Tenuous. Well, it's soil stuff. All right. Well, let's, let's see. I'll how quickly you kick mine off. And, and the, so this came. Okay. So the article is one that you actually found for me um, called The Bones of Waterloo. But what this was the precursor to this article. I've been watching Game of Thrones the last few years, as has mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was checking something. This is not too much of a spoiler alert, but recently on a bl- Game of Thrones that I was watching, there was an incredibly bloody battle scene. And because I was watching this, as I do with so many things through this type of filter I have for soil, I started thinking to myself, with all these battles throughout history, this widespread carnage, we'll be at World War One or the Battle of Waterloo and yada, 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 there's been a hell of a lot of blood spilt, as well as probably bowels and bladders and bone fragments and all sorts of stuff, and started thinking, would there be sites throughout the world where these huge battles have taken place, where the localised soil fertility has seen an increase as a result of all this carnage, I suppose. Um, And I'm not very good with tech, so I emailed Adam and said, how would I start to research this kind of thing? And he found this article called The Bones of Waterloo. And um, this is kind of a bit of a twist on it, but basically um, from about the early 1800s onwards, uh, the British went mad on just trading, like bringing in bone getting bones from all over the world, wherever they could get it, digging up old bodies in Egypt, here, there and everywhere. Um, oh, have I human bones especially. Human bones especially. So, mm. Mummies. Is that what yeah, yeah. Some, ancient. And even um, there was a thing in here about a lot of cats, mummified cats. But, yeah, it was quite a bizarre thing. And the other thing that they, they, they loved was getting all the teeth from um, these old bodies big for the denture trade. Oh, so, you so know, not just for soil. Not just for soil, yeah. No. So back in you know, the early 1800s, You're someone recycling. said to you, oh, you've got a lovely smile, oh, it's not entirely mine. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, but the bone thing. And there, there, so this article, which I might put up on the page, there's a fair bit to it. It was all about getting all those, the, the ingrained minerals and calciums and all those sorts of things found in bone. And they were grinding it up and spreading it out on the farmlands of, of Britain. 
I'm kind of feeling a bit of biodynamic voodoo. If if you're digging it, you know, is it really yeah. worth taking a fossilized uh, Egyptian lord? I presume you didn't get to probably um, cursed. Yeah, the yeah. pharaohs. But yeah, yeah. who knows? But yeah, <laughs> and then because you want to grow like magic. Giant pumpkins or something. Or sort of adds to the food miles, doesn't it? Does it does add to the food miles. Well, there's little snippets throughout here. So it says, you know, a ship from Hamburg arrived at Lozimouth last week laden with bones, a property of an agriculturalist of Moray Shire, and intended for manuring. The master of the vessel states that the bones were collected from the plains and marches of Lipsick and are part of the remains of thousands who fell in the battles fought betwixt France and the Allies in October 1813. So... I think part of this article was to maybe debunk that it had happened, but in fact, when they started to put it together, they found a hell of a lot of evidence and records that, yeah, the bone trade was massive. You know, th- like, here we go, 200, uh, 200 imperial tonnes of bone um, feature on a nautical register of 1822, like a million bushels of bones and so forth. Um, golly. Golly. <laughs> what? Um, well, so, shall I segue into into mine? So I, I saw an article also about soil, um, and I presume like dead bodies with all those minerals. Because one thing is like bones that doesn't that's like a mineral nutrient that isn't going anywhere once you've added it. That's mm. a one time addition. Mm. As long as you're cycling things on site, uh, I guess it's kind of a parallel. I was reading an article from from uh, National Geographic. That's the one called How Africans Are Saving Their Own Soil. And it's kind of a parallel. You guys would have heard of Terra Preta. I'm not sure if everyone has. But these are the... That's uh, Portuguese for for the black soil, which Mm -hmm. is found in the Amazon, just in these few places where they think it was created hundreds or thousands of years ago. And it's still these incredibly rich soils created by humans. So it's one of these rare situations where we seem to be building soil faster than nature does. Normally we're exceptionally good at destroying it. And there's some archaeologists who were working in Africa, actually in Guinea, so in West Africa, who were trying to go through the remains of some old um, settlements. settlements, Mm. And they were struggling because the neighbouring... Uh, people were coming in and trying to grow food quite a long way from their own home. And so why were they doing this? Well, it turned out because the, the, the previous villages had built similarly the same kind of soil. So this is pretty exciting because we're seeing similar things happening in different parts of the planet. Mm-hmm. And so what they were doing is, and this is true of the Amazon and of these parts of Africa where they've been finding these soils, is incompletely burning things so slow combustion um, burning green things maybe or uh, sometimes it could be animal manures and people are still doing it to this day and there's still cultural heritage of making these soils and that seems to be how they do it but um, kind of cold low low oxygen burns Mm. and you end up with charcoals which will stay in the soil for hundreds of years Mm. and we had a conversation on the show a few weeks back um, a few weeks back about hum- hummus and how, you know, everyone who's ever watched a gardening show has heard of, of hummus, but turns not, out... Not it, the dip. Not the dip. <laughs> no, the other, the other one. <laughs> uh, the, the spongy black stuff. And yep. it turns out recent soil science is saying it doesn't even exist. And what they're... What? Yes. Mm. I know. What? Yeah. Yes. It's, it doesn't exist. What, it doesn't exist. I know. It's an it's experimental artefact. 
And what, what we thought was happening there was that this spongy brown stuff was this um, fairly stable carbon element in the soil. But now they're saying, no, it's just constantly degrading. And that makes this discovery all the more important because what we thought we were doing to build long-term soil carbon mm. uh, is not really a long-term strategy. But yep. this might be, and that has huge implications for strategies involving carbon drawdown from the atmosphere into the soil, solving two problems at once, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and building these highly fertile soils in the process. Indeed. The interesting stuff. Bones, soil and food. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. And you are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we have on the phone from Portugal, <laughs> Rafter Sass Ferguson, who, where he is uh, an acting agroecologist and researcher at the University of Lisbon's Centre for Ecology, Evolution and Environmental Change. And he is one of those people who I look towards online as a very smart critic of the permaculture movement, but also someone uh, who is part of it and who tries to pick the best of it and share it widely. Now, Rafter, many we have talked a bit about permaculture in this show before, but we have probably never used the word agroecology before. What exactly does an agroecologist do with their time? <laughs> well, uh... First, uh, hi, Adam, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, agroecologists do all kinds of different things with their time. Um, the uh, There's actually kind of, it's sort of like saying, what does a permaculturist do with their time? Um, it's a it's, There's a lot of different sectors in agroecology, and so you've got some folks who are really, uh, you know, very research-oriented and even within that research, there's a lot of different sectors, people who are doing lab work and field work or people who are doing more sort of like whole farm research or people who are doing social research around uh, sustainable agriculture. And you've also got people who are uh, much more on the movement end of things and are involved in uh, are involved in managing farms or who are doing involved in the sort of farmer to farmer training and farmer research networks. So there's uh, there's all kinds of ways to do agroecology, and, and it's probably almost implicit in the name, but it is a combination agroecology of agriculture and ecology. Uh, is there is there a tight definition for what it is? Uh, you could call it the uh, the the science of sustainable food systems. Okay, and so it, you know it's interesting in a way that's somewhat parallel with with permaculture it's had an expansion in its scope since the 70s and 80s of its in its founding it was very much focused on sort of the the field scale of looking okay what are people growing and how are they growing what's happening in the soil what's happening uh in the systems themselves and then slowly uh expanded over the 80s and 90s to encompass sort of more and more of the food system and the, it kind of acknowledging that uh well actually we can't we can't make the the field sustainable if it's not in a sustainable context. So what's happening um, in the farm household? What's happening in the community? What's happening when the food leaves the field and where it's going and sort of following the trail all the way to the consumer? 
I guess that's part of the initial uh, permaculture idea of rather than looking at things in their individual segments of how, what is the connectivity between all of the elements in a system. Is that, is that what you would say? Yeah, very much so. And uh, the, you know, agroecology doesn't always um, foreground the sort of the, the systems thinking that is really highlighted in permaculture, but it's very implicit in the way that agroecology ap- approaches food systems and approaches uh, farming. Now, it's all about looking for those connections. Now, now where is permaculture is something that's operated outside of the institution it's sort of a peer-to-peer rat baggy grassroots grassroots that's a better way thank you peter <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, movement agroecology is something which on the other hand has both and you called it a science but it has had a decent amount of science eyes put upon it as well as un and other large institutional um organizations backing it what mm-hmm. what what kind of practices promoted by agroecology do have a fair bit of scientific backup? Uh, well, there's, there's, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of scientific support for, you know, all kinds of agroecological practices from um, the benefits of polycultures and polycropping to, you know, sort of integrated, uh, integrated water management systems, controlling your sort of nutrient cycling. So you're producing your nutrients on site rather than importing them. And there's a huge overlap between the practices promoted by agroecology and the practices associated with permaculture. There's, there's, there, there are very few things that are really, I'm not sure if I can think of any ex- that are that are unique to either agroecology or permaculture. Maybe herb spirals. <laughs> uh, I've, never, I've never seen discussion of herb spirals in, in agroecology. So why do you think it is that uh, agro- agroecology has had a lot more of this sort of scientific research devoted to it, um, and whereas permaculture, you know, hasn't really got that um, data to kind of back stuff up? Well, it's really... it's. For me, it's a really fascinating and inspiring story, actually, uh, on both on both sides of it, because you can see both of these movements emerging in the '70s uh, in response to a similar uh, a similar set of sort of global problems that were being confronted, and dissatisfaction with the conventional way of doing things, dissatisfaction with the trajectory that we were on, and and that unfortunately we're still on. And with permaculture, of course, you know, emerging from uh, a couple uh, guys down your way, right? <laughs> and agroecology coming out of Latin America and having more specifically with a, you know, a very similar outlook and worldview and set of practices, but focusing more attention specifically on understanding and defending indigenous and traditional land use management. Mm-hmm. And these two, you know, kind of coming up at the in at the same point, these two traditions made really different choices about how to follow that strategy, where Holmgren and Mollison were very, made the assessment that like, oh, these institutions can't handle us. They're too conservative. They're too bound up in their disciplines and can't, you know, are threatened by interdisciplinarity and they're beholden to corporate interests and they just totally, they can't, they're not ready. And so they, pretty decisively sort of burned those bridges and we're like we're going strictly grassroots mm-hmm. and of course Holmgren went in the direction of okay I'm gonna I'm gonna test out all these ideas and Mollison is like I'm gonna start teaching them internationally right away 
I think most of our listeners will have picked up this if they don't know it, but they are the two, the people credited with co-originating permaculture. Mm. Though the right. Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker... Yeah. Although it's much more equal in their, <laughs> equal in their skill. <laughs> yeah. And in, uh, with agroecology, um, with Stephen Kleesman and Miguel Altieri and uh, these other guys, they said, well, we're going we're gonna to maintain our connections with these institutions as problematic as they are and keep fighting for those resources and create links between on-the-ground land users and traditional farmers and these institutions I think in part because of that different mission that they had, which was very specifically bringing in the tools of modern ecology and use them to understand and to defend traditional land use. Mm. So we have permaculture spreading along its pathway with its own sort of with its own uh, idiosyncrasies instead of priorities and and really amazing grassroots uh, pedagogy tools and sort of paradigm shifting permaculture design course. And we have agroecology at the same time spreading through institutions at the same time as it builds connections with peasant communities in Latin America and now very much internationally. Mm. And um, that was and I, just a quick question I had around that too. Is, is it closely linked with the you know landless farmers kind of movement? Um, and perhaps there's been greater organising ability, you know, through those kind of Latin American grassroots movements. Would that be um, something that's kind of made agroecology uh, more of a, a thing? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 exactly it. Uh, through connecting with peasant movements and landless workers movements. And now in the past several years, agroecology has been formally adopted by Via Campesina, yeah. which is the you know, International Federation of Peasant Movements, largest social movement federation in the world. You know, some, you know millions, and it's, I think they say something like 600 million members because it's a federation of regional and national peasant federations. And they've brought agroecology on board. And they're saying, okay, this is the, the technical, scientific, practical wing or sector within our peasant movement, which is amazing. And I think this is something that I, I really like to, ta- to talk about with permaculturists and say, hey, this is something that we should be paying attention to. When we burned our bridges with institutions you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, that was, I think, the reasons for that saying all oh, these institutions just aren't ready i think that was a legitimate analysis actually i'm i'm glad things that went the way they did at that time mm. but we also just i need to see how the the landscape has changed since then and when you have the campesina you know acknowledging and adopting agro uh, agroecology or you have you know olivier de Schutter, the special rapporteur on the right to food from the un putting out this this special report saying there's that agroecology is sort of the answer and permaculture is not being mentioned in these contexts. We need to, it's not, it's not sort of, for me, it's not really a turf thing in the sense of, oh, agroecology is drinking all our milkshake. How come we don't get to be there? It's that I think that, (laughs) I think that because I, you know, I'm an agroecologist and a permaculturist also. So I, I do all right either way. Right. (laughs) But I think permaculture really has a contribution to make to that that is not getting made because we're still figuring out how to show up to that scale of conversation, right? We're still figuring out how to scale up in that way. Still being a bit punk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is okay, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, it's, 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm fine with like the the history of how we got to this point. But now I think we're in this moment when we need uh, to add some new tricks to our to our game. You know. Indeed. Um, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Three Triple R. Our guest this evening from uh, Portugal is Rafter Sass Ferguson. He's an agroecologist. Um, he also uh, skirts the boards between uh, agroecology and permaculture. Uh, we've got a very big question for you, Raf. Um, we presumably wouldn't have arrived at a population globally of 7 billion um, and rising if it wasn't for industrial agriculture, which you know, has come to include very large pieces of machinery and hybrid seeds and chemicals and masses of energy input. Uh, the conventional wisdom would say that we can't go back to low-input organic agriculture without billions of people starving. And yet, on the other hand, it seems like industrial agriculture is in itself, it's eating itself, it's destroying soil, it's contributing massively to climate change, it's eating up the fossil fuels that it depends on, and so at some stage it has to crash. And it seems to be a dilemma between billions starving now or even more billions starving later as the whole system continues its crashing. Have we described this dilemma accurately? And does agroecology offer some hope on a global scale of being able to service the food requirements of the human population? Well, yeah, that's a that's a that's a reasonably big question, I would say. Yeah, I had to draw uh, a big breath to ask it. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's really it's the biggest it's the biggest question. You know what we know, like whether whether you subscribe to like the brand of agroecology or or whatever, um, like putting aside the labels for a second, we know that industrial farming, for one thing, it's not a system unto itself; it's part of a larger system. Yep. Right. It's 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 farming that was that has been designed to serve an economic system more than it serves people or the earth. And so we know that industrial farming and this and you kind of want to call it neoliberalism or capitalism is not going to solve the problems that it's creating because any system is going to is going to maintain the problems that serve it. And so I think that. We know that, you know, whatever, however we choose to chart a course through the kind of the tumultuous times that we're in, and that we know that sort of more of the same in terms of industrial agriculture actually is actually not, it's pretty much a non-starter in most parts of the world for most of humanity. And so I think that whatever tools we want to bring to the table in terms of figuring out, okay, now what is a way, what are ways of farming? Like what are the the many ways that we can farm, which serve people in the earth much better and, and first before they serve an economic system. And I think agroecology and and permaculture are both, both just labels that we are applying to the, the answers to this question, like ways that we're trying to answer these questions. And so a lot of that is turning to, traditional peasant indigenous farming practices which currently are still feeding around 60 percent of the people on the planet Mm. um the dominance of industrial agriculture has in terms of who it's actually feeding has been has been exaggerated quite a bit when the industry raises this specter of how are we going to feed all these people i think that there's there's a whole lot of ways there's, there's several ways that we need to respond to that because there's problems with the way that question is framed in multiple ways. And one 
is the is just the if people are hungry we need to grow more food right the sort of production paradigm or productivism mm. because for one thing we know now that about a third of all food that's produced is wasted and you know so never gets eaten and the ways that it, it's wasted uh, vary from majority world context to minority world context but you know a third of all food is wasted and second we know that uh you know research and meta analysis show that uh addressing you know education for women and you know ed- or education in general and human rights especially for women actually programs that do that ameliorate hunger as effectively or better than any sort of uh any sort of uh, green revolution agricultural development so if we know that we can address hunger in a variety of ways why are we focusing specifically on we need these technologies that produce more calories per acre yeah. when as you know while we have more where we do have more people we don't necessarily have less hungry people on the planet mm. It is that it's a trapped loop, isn't it? It's a, mar- a market causing um, some destruction and then seeking a market mechanism to resolve that destruction. Right. I, th- I think yeah, you've exactly. possibly... Have you also painted... It's, you've made it sound, I think, a little bit like a false... or like a dichotomy between choosing between production on the one hand and more ecological methods and ones that are uh, enmeshed in more local, less exploitive economies, perhaps, on the other. Uh, But I'm pretty certain I've read in some of the UN reports where they say in the majority world, uh, where energy costs are higher relative to salaries and incomes, uh, the productivity of the agroecological farms, the small farms, is much higher than the big industrial ones. Mm -hmm. Or at least as high. And I think, yeah, yields are com- are competitive and in many cases better, especially when you look at when you look at sort of more marginal agricultural regions, you can get a lot more bang for your for your buck for your you know for your ecological development buck going with agroecological methods and the you know if you look at something like the the um, the push pull system. Um, which is this amazing agroecological innovation that was developed to deal with this uh, parasitic plant called striga that uh, affects, uh, you know, maize and millet and all kinds of crops in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. That you know they would farmers who had striga in their fields would sometimes you know have a hundred percent losses, and instead of coming in to like either you know to bring in uh, some bacteria to take care of it uh, or um, developing a, a, a chemical, a, you know, a targeted herbicide. They identified plants that repelled them, repelled the striker from the field, and plants that also additionally attracted uh, another pest to the perimeter of the field. So using a combination of a, a legume and a, a grass, mm-hmm. uh, they were able to increase yields by 100 and 200% without any added chemicals, just through adding two plants to the field. Rafter, we that is um you know what would be great 
we think because we're, we're podcasting these days and I, you're a perfect candidate for a bonus long form interview because I would love to hear from you about all of the many farms that you've visited in your travels and um, there's so much more we could talk to you about but we're going to have to wrap up the show for this evening um, but thank you so very much for joining us Ralph Sass Ferguson it was my pleasure thanks for having me on great well hopefully we will talk to you again You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. We are commencing the wrap-up. I'd like to thank Jed for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence like a champion. We'd like to thank you for coming in tonight, Peter. Thanks for having me. You'll be back next week. Yeah, I'll be here. Awesome. Adam, what are we doing next week? Next week... Well, Triple R listeners will be very familiar with the voice of Carly Coulston from The Grapevine. Well, she... Moonlights or sunlights at the ATA. <laughs> day jobs. Day, has a day sunlights. job. Sunlights. Yeah, Renew Magazine and the like. And they've put a edition out recently involving intergenerational living and stuff. But we're going to talk to her about all things cramming more people into less space. So yeah. share housing, be rich, uh, died with a falafel in his hand type material. Uh. Multi-generational, is that right? Well, yeah, all kinds. Possibly. We're going to talk about all kinds. Fantastic. Uh, we'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, please do have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.